Good morning, everyone. It is a joy to see all of you once again. We're marching along in our series on the, the great five solas of the Reformation. As we began uh, at the beginning of this month, we started with Scripture alone, sola scriptura, grace, grace alone, sola gratia. Last week we did faith alone, sola fide, and today, not a surprise, Christ alone, solus Christus. With that, I'd ask if you'd please turn in your Bibles for our, our Scripture reading. We'll be looking at this text briefly, and we have another passage that, or two that we'll also be examining, but this is a good one to get us rolling. Isaiah 43, Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 13. Isaiah 43, 1 through 13. If you're able, I would invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Isaiah 43, 1 through 13. But now, thus says Yahweh, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble, whom among them can declare this and show us the former things. Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am Yahweh, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? God adds His blessing to the reading of His holy word. Please be seated. Now, we humans are quite uh, adept, proficient, at coming up with ways to save ourselves from pain, to save ourselves from inconvenience, to save ourselves from work, to save ourselves 
from danger. And yes, we are rather adept at coming up with ways to save ourselves from damnation. I didn't say that uh, the ways that we come up with are any good. I just said that we're good at coming up with ways. This tendency to depend upon our, our own cleverness and our own efforts can sometimes be a helpful thing in temporal matters. Okay? But when it comes to our souls, it's an utter disaster. It is utterly hopeless. Now, to be sure, this desire to save ourselves can look pretty good to our eyes, can it not? Jesus, uh, commenting in Matthew chapter 24 about the situation in the end of days as uh, error continues to uh, make its advances, we read there, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. The church is not, uh, is, is not immune to these temptations. They can look pretty good to us. Now, during the time of the Reformation, the battle between man's imagination and God's sovereign plan came to a head uh, in... in many different issues, but one particular one that we'll highlight this morning is that of opposing views concerning the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, baptism, and then for the Church of Rome, of course, they added five other ones as well. And what, what happened as you have different discussions about the power that's in the sacraments and what they mean and what their role is in the church, it also includes not just the actual rituals themselves, but it also included the, the, the view of the power of the church. How it was expressed. We talked a little bit about this uh, this morning in Sunday school as well. Now, Rome's theology is sacramental. It's sometimes referred to as sacramentalism. That is, Rome holds that the sacraments have saving power in and of themselves as long as they are properly administered by a priest. Of course, that gives great power into the hands of the human priest. Grace is conveyed via seven sacraments from cradle to grave. Okay? The practical implication of sacramentalism, though, is to rest the believer's hope in the external practice of religion and to elevate the church and its officers into a position that usurps the authority that belongs to Christ and ascribes his power to save to those who are performing these rituals. And that's a problem. In fact, this is the reason uh, why the Pope is called the Vicar of Christ. The word Vicar, uh, it's noted, uh, quoting from an article called The Pope, Vicar of Christ. What does that really mean? found online. Um, the word vicar comes from the Latin word vicarious, meaning substitution. The online version of the Pocket Catholic Dictionary defines the vicar of Christ as, quote, the Pope, visible head of the church on earth, acting for, and get this, in the place of Christ. 
The reformers, on the other hand, held that Christ and his work are sufficient, that the church is simply to be a witness to his person and work, and that sacramentalism, with all of its... Uh, this is a quote from Herman Bavink uh, in his uh, book, Sin and Salvation in Christ. With all of its relics, indulgences, the rosary, and the mass was nothing less than abuse. For example, uh, Luther's 95 Theses, uh, when he nailed those on the door, most of them were dealing with sacramental issues, particularly indulgences and uh, how you get to heaven and his disputes with Rome on those counts. Philip Schaff, in his History of the Christian Church, which, by the way, if you don't have that book in your library, you ought to get a copy of it. It's it's old book. It's been around a long time. Uh, 1910 edition is what I'm going to quote from here. But uh, it's, a, it's an outstanding resource uh, that takes you up to basically the uh, end of the, uh, the uh, 19th century. Anyway, he made this comment. The Reformers rejected the sacerdotal system altogether and substituted for it the general priesthood of believers. Sacerdotal meaning the whole priesthood set up. Okay? They set that aside and, and, sub, and substituted for it the priesthood of the believers who have direct access to Christ as our only mediator and advocate and are to offer the spiritual sacrifices of prayer, praise, and intercession. He goes on to talk about how the reformers sought to raise up God's word as the primary means of grace above the sacraments. And while they retained baptism in the Lord's Supper, instituted by Christ for universal and perpetual observance, as he puts it, um, he notes that folks like Zwingli and Calvin and other reformers reduced the sacraments to signs and seals of grace, which the Holy Spirit communicates to us as he will, not the sacraments used as a chain by which we compel God to give us what we want him to give us. Now, I'd love to tell you that uh, this debate was back then and it's all been settled. But I think we all know that it, that it wasn't settled back then. The, the sacramental debate continues today, I'm sad to say. But the challenge today is a little bit different than that which our spiritual forefathers faced. We don't live in a society uh, where the church's authority is assumed by the common man or where its rites and rituals and that culture that it creates is integral to all of society like it was in those days. And frankly, uh, understanding of the sacraments these days is at an even lower ebb than it was during the Reformation. Our context now is one of a staggering and discouraging biblical illiteracy, at least while the, the common man was often illiterate about the Bible in the days of the Reformation, at least there was this mental understanding of the presence of God and, his, and the, the obligations that everyday people had towards him. Today, that's largely absent um, there's also a denial these days of exclusivity of, of, of there's, that there's only one proper way to the Lord. Today, people want all roads to lead to God 
without anybody judging anybody else about the decisions they make on how they want to get to God. So these days, before you discuss the finer points of sacramental theory, uh, you kind of have to start with an even more basic question. Uh, A gentleman named Stephen J. Wellam uh, wrote a a book uh, called Solus Christus, What What the Reformers Taught and Why It Still Matters. Excellent article if you want to read it. He's a professor um, at one of the Southern Baptist uh, seminaries. Uh, but he asks this, he summarizes the question that we have to ask now this way. Why is Christ the unique, exclusive, and all-sufficient Savior? Scripture answers, because he is the only one who can meet our need, accomplish all of God's sovereign purposes, and save us from our sins. So when we answer this question, we can only come to the conclusion as we look at the scriptures that the way to salvation is in Christ alone. Now, the idea of an exclusive Savior was not new among God's people with the coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, this truth has long been asserted. In fact, it goes all the way back to God's promise of the Messiah to come in Genesis chapter 3. But a great example of this promise regarding the exclusivity of our Savior is found in the passage that I just read to you from Isaiah chapter 43. Now, I won't read it all again. I'm going to go through this fairly quickly, but I want you to kind of pay attention to the, the, the thoughts that the prophet Isaiah lays out for us here, where, where we definitely see that God is saying, there is no other Savior. There's none other. I am your Savior and my servant whom I have chosen. First of all, this is a Savior. If you look at verses 1 and 7, you see the emphasis upon this Savior, this Redeemer, our God, our Redeemer God, who creates His people. Right? He's the one who created us. He's the one who formed us. He's the one who not only created and formed us, but he created and formed us for his glory, verse 7 says. He's a Savior who not only creates his people, but he honors them. He offers them, you see in verses 2 through 4, where he offers them, provides for them protection, redemption, and love. That is showing honor to his people. He will be with us. He is the one who gives others as a ransom who holds his people higher in esteem than those who are not his people. This is a Savior who not only honors his people, but also gathers his people. And he does so, verses 5 through 7, completely and powerfully as he draws them from the the east and the west, the north and the south, and draws them all in. Those those who are called by his name, they will come. John 10, 29, Jesus said, My Father who has given them to me, his people, his sheep, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Jesus, of course, very well aware that he is the one who is referred to in this passage in Isaiah as the servant whom God will send, the Messiah our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And he gathers us 
and calls us his own. And as he does these things, he's made us, he honors us, he gathers us, he proves himself to us. He's, you know, <clears throat> we have a, it's pretty common understanding, uh, even in the world about leadership, that genuine leaders don't just go, you know, shut up because I said so. Believe it because I said so. But if anyone could have the right to say, sit down and be quiet because I said so, it would be God. But even he does not do that. He says, I'm going to, he says to the world that wants to call him into question, he says, bring forth your witnesses. See if you can bring your proofs against me. I will give my witnesses a chance to speak. Think about what I have done for you. Here are the proofs that I am truly your Redeemer, the only Redeemer of God's elect. Notice in verse 8, uh, well, beginning at verse 8, people who are blind, they have eyes, they have deaf, the nations are gathering together and they're not gathering together for a good purpose. They're like, okay, prove yourself, God. Verses 8 and 9. When we get to verse 10, it says, understand, here's my people. You consider what I've done. Consider my history. Consider my character. Consider my promises. Consider my love for you. You are my witnesses. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. There, there are no other gods. In verse 11, I, I am Yahweh. If you were to read this uh, without the, the, the covenant name and just for what the word means, be I, I am the I am. Besides me, there is no Savior. I am the I am. I am the revealer. I am the Savior. I am the creator. I am the keeper. I am the doer. If you're taking notes, sorry, I went kind of fast. But that's the picture that we have. This God that is the only God, the only true God, is the only Savior. There is no one else to look to, no institution to look to, to redeem us. He alone is our Savior. And that's because He is the, the almighty, faithful I Am. He is the one, and, and that really is kind of the idea there where He says, there's no strange God among you. I declared this when there was no idols when there were no idols and you are my witness declares the I am declares Yahweh and I am Elohim Elohim uh, translated as God here but it means the almighty one this is our God and he reveals to us uh, you see that in this passage he reveals his ways he delivers us he's created us he keeps us and he works on our behalf. And these are all proofs that our God is our only Savior. But you have just the hint there of the servant whom he will send. But I believe that this is the context. This precious passage in Isaiah and others that we find in the Old Testament as well. But if this is the context in which Jesus declared in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
The Apostle Paul would bring, um, remember when I quoted well, uh, well, uh, Wellam uh, just a few minutes ago, he spoke about the unique, exclusive, and all-sufficient character of our Savior. Well, Paul speaks about that unique, exclusive, and all-sufficient character of our Savior when he writes his letter to the Colossian church. Consider, if you'll turn over there to Colossians chapter 1, and consider with me what Paul says as he describes the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. And as I read this to you, think about what I have just gone through, what we've just gone through in the book of Isaiah. Colossians 1, beginning at verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven uh, or whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Incredible passage. As Paul exalts our Lord Jesus in our sight, but notice the notice the the if you were break to break this down into the various points of description regarding our Savior, just as the prophet Isaiah declared that the Lord and the servant whom he would send would be redeemer, would be a redeemer and deliverer. In fact, the only one. We are reminded here that the Lord Jesus Christ is the deliverer. He delivers us unto our inheritance, which uh, was spoken of in verse 12, which I didn't read. But he, he redeems us. That you know, Redemption is a word that we use a lot in Christian circles, of course. And I think most of us are familiar with the, the whole idea of a redemption price, of paying a price. It, this, and that's true. But redemption is not just paying the price, but paying a price that absolutely frees. There's freedom on the basis of, from, the, from the former bondage, on the basis of the price being paid, being released from the debt of your sin. He had to pay that debt. Sin always, has, sin always incurs a debt, and someone must pay it. And it's either going to be you, or it's going to be a substitute. And if it's you, then, and me, or me, we're hopeless. Because we cannot do it. We just cannot. But our Savior did it, did it perfectly, and redeemed us from our debt, releasing us from our debt. He is the image of God, verse 15. He is, uh, as Isaiah spoke of being the I am, Remember how many times in the Gospel of John, Jesus, there's, uh, Jesus uses that phrase, I am, in reference to himself. There are, for those of you that uh, 
may be wondering, it's seven times. In fact, it, it's, you can argue that the book of John is actually organized around those seven occasions, which makes it a little different from the other Gospels, which tend to be a little bit more in the chronological realm and kind of give more everyday details. John has a theological purpose for writing his book, and so he focuses upon the identity of Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of God, who is the I Am. D.A. Carson, in his, uh, in his commentary uh, on this passage, says that, that in the Son we may see God's true likeness. Now we'll talk about, uh, as the image of God is, we have here by Paul is speaking of Christ as the firstborn. We're going to talk about the firstborn in a little bit more in a moment. But how, how is the image of God shown in Jesus Christ? Well, we saw this in Isaiah. We see it here. He is the creator of all things. He's first. He's the firstborn in creation. He created it all. He is the one who spoke the worlds into existence, according to Hebrews chapter 1. And he is the one who sustains it. In Hebrews chapter 1 also, we find that Jesus is first of all things. And we read that in verse 17 of this Colossians 1 passage. In Hebrews 1, we're told that Jesus is first because he is greater than all, greater than all angels, greater than all powers, greater than all high priests, greater than everything. He is first of all. He's also first because he's the keeper. We see that in verse 17 here, right? He, in him, all things hold together. He's first not because he creates it all, because he's greater than all, but because he keeps it all. And we saw that there in Isaiah 43, that he is the creator, the keeper, and the one who accomplishes all things. And in verse 18, Paul speaks here of Christ as the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is your head. He is the one from whom everything flows, life, and understanding, direction, and power. He's firstborn in creation. He's firstborn in resurrection. Firstborn in the dead, from the dead. He's firstborn in the church. He's conquered what conquers every mortal man. He's Lord, both of the dead and the living. Matthew Henry writes, All, all our hopes and joys take their rise from him who is the author of our salvation. Not that he was the first who ever rose from the dead, but he was the first and only one who rose by his own power and was declared to be the Son of God and Lord of all things. This is our Savior. Now, the book of Colossians as a whole is a wonderful, wonderful look at the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And Paul, in his argument concerning Christ uh, throughout this letter, draws everything together in the very heart of the book, chapter 2, verses 10 through 15, or we could really begin at verse 9. And here in this central section, central portion of the book, or the, the letter to the Colossian church, we can discern why Christ is the alone Savior, why he is sufficient why in him 
all the promises are fulfilled and why no human ritual or authority has any part in the actual saving of our souls. This is the contention of the Reformers, and it is our contention today if we remain faithful to God's Word. Take a look at uh, chapter 2 of the book of Colossians, and we'll devote the rest of our time here in this passage. I'll read beginning at verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Notice the emphasis upon fullness here. There's fullness, there's the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ And as we trust and believe in him, then we experience that fullness as we dwell in him. But it really starts and must go in that order. The fullness starts with him. And we are blessed by that. Now, verses uh, 10 and 15, within the context of this uh, fullness, speak of Christ as a conqueror. He's a conqueror. He is the one who uh, is the head of all rule and authority. He is the one who disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by his victory on the cross. As the, the fullness of the Godhead, he is the exhaustion of deity. And this truth is the necessary foundation for why the ministry of the cross works, why it accomplishes what what the Lord's planned for it to accomplish. Paul here uses this term fullness. It's it's a, a word in the original that means completeness or totality. There is no part of, of Jesus. He is neither more or less than any other than God himself. One with the father. John Angle James, Puritan pastor, made this uh, description regarding the the uniqueness and sufficiency and the, the, the glory of Jesus Christ when he commented that in the divinity of his person, the efficacy, uh, the effectiveness of his atonement, the prevalence of his intercession, the fullness of his grace, the freeness of his invitations, the perfection of his example in all his mediatorial offices and scripture characters. In other words, in every way that he is manifested in the word of God, Christ exhibits his oneness with the Father in totality. There is no lack in him whatsoever. He is the conqueror. He's conquered death. 
He's conquered the world system that desires to have your soul and mine. But Christ has conquered it. And so has won the way to our own completeness in him. Christ is, I'm going to use a term that you might not have, a phrase that you might not have ever thought of before, at least in this way. In verses 11 and 14, we have an emphasis upon circumcision, and then uh, verse 14, speaking about the, the record of debt that's canceled, that's set aside, nailing it to the cross. Christ is a conqueror, but Christ is also, I'm going to say, Christ the circumcised. Secures the way to your justification. Now, think with me for a minute on what circumcision's purpose was in the Old Testament. Circumcision had to do with, uh, on, on one hand, the identity of the person who was circumcised being identified with the people of God. So there's that. But it was more than that. It, it, it spoke to the cleansing, the putting away of sin. Just the same way that baptism does these days. A putting away of sin and identity with God's people uh, because of his covenant and being beneficiaries of his blessings. Because we now belong to him. Christ, of course, was physically circumcised as a Jewish boy. But notice that this circumcision, this setting apart, this cleansing, what, where was the cutting away of, of sin and, and, and the, the flesh done with the Lord Jesus Christ? It was on the cross where he became sin for us and paid the penalty and was therefore cleansed and restored to fellowship with the Father. And it is because he put away sin and the flesh and did so perfectly that you and I can be redeemed and that the that the 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 right the sacrament of baptism actually means anything because it speaks of the putting away of the flesh and our our, our identity with the one who was the captain of our salvation as the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2 Verse 10, for it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect. Do you know how it ends? Through sufferings. Through sufferings. When we come later to the Lord's table, we are speaking of those sufferings by which Jesus Christ Again, a phrase you might not have thought about this way, by which Jesus Christ was made perfect, having fulfilled all that he was supposed to do, being able to say, it is finished. He, was to total, he and his ministry were totally and utterly complete, completed by the cross. And so secures the way to our justification. We are justified, as we spoke before, by faith, through grace. But it's not just because we're faithful and because we like to view, think positive. It's because of the object of that faith, Christ alone, who satisfied 
the, the requirements of the law and, and uh, brought to an end the wrath of God toward his own. Incredible thought. No man can do that. No other institution can do that. And then look at verses 12 and 13. Okay, well, I'll just read into it a bit. You were, uh, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body and the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, which very clearly identifies baptism as the replacement uh, of circumcision in the life of the believer. Uh, but having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Christ, the crucified and risen, ensures the way to your generation, your regeneration. He's conquered sin and death. He's conquered the powers of the world, the spiritual wickedness in high places. He has put away sin in and of himself by his own actions for himself and his people once for all. And thus we may be justified on the basis of his righteousness applied to our account. And by his crucifixion and resurrection, we then may know that we are, do indeed have our trespasses forgiven and our redemption secure in him. He ensures that. And that's because of this, the, the emphasis upon the circumcision and baptism, it has to do with covenant, the signs of the covenant. Baptism being the sign of the, 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 sign of the new covenant, of our, of, our, of our inclusion in that covenant by God's righteous and holy uh, choice and working in our lives. So that we, by what he has done, we have covenant union in his death. We don't have to constantly re-sacrifice Christ in a mass to make sure, just in case, we didn't do it right the first time. Or to make up for stuff that we've done in the meantime. Christ did it once doesn't get repeated. We're bound by covenant to him. And as we've received that covenant sign, uh, we are bound together in him, in his death. Colossians 1, uh, back uh, in that earlier chapter there, verses 19 and 20, Paul says, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's the foundation of our peace, his sacrifice that pays our debt. But I'm thankful that it doesn't stop there. It's not uh, just the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his resurrection, which we've spoken of before. Uh, the writer of, uh, uh, or of, yeah, no, sorry, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, when he speaks of the, kind of summarizes the gospel, he speaks of the Lord Jesus being, uh, of dying, uh, uh, going to the cross, dying, being buried, 
and then rising again. And that's the foundation of his lordship over us. And why we are not hopeless, because there is a resurrection. If there were no resurrection, we, Paul says, we, uh, we're, uh, of, every, of everybody out there, we're the most miserable, because our hope is in vain. We not only have covenant union in his death, the, the sign of this new covenant tells us that there is also union with him in his life. Restoration, cleansing that reunites us to him. I read a little bit uh, from Colossians 1, 19 to 20. If you go on to Colossians, Colossians 2, verse 19, we read, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments groans, grows with the increase that is from God. We have life in his name because he took the penalty of our death upon himself. And so we are united to him. This is our Savior who is full, who has accomplished everything, who makes us complete, who, who, whose righteousness is ascribed, imputed to our account so that we may stand as righteous before God. This is the one who has secured us by covenant vow and faithfulness. The great I am who will never fail is the one who is our only Savior and secures our regeneration through Jesus Christ. As the fullness of the Godhead, Christ alone is fit to reconcile all things, which speaks of in verses 20 to 23 here. He reconciles all things to himself as the creator. He orders and sustains his creation in perfect harmony to accomplish his holy will. He secures the foundation for a pure eternity for a restored creation through his blood. Look at Romans chapter 8 for that and also Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Furthermore, he reconciles his bride to himself as her redeemer. Verses 21 to 23 of this chapter here in Colossians explain that by his sacrifice, his goal is your purity. The natural consequence of this blood-bought relationship is that he then requires that you continue in the faith, as we read in verse 23, in hope. His reconciliation continues as we walk with him, finding in him alone our access to the Father. For as we read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. I'd like to close this morning by uh, citing uh, an article by Dr. Michael Horton, uh, excellent theologian, in an article called Solus Christus, Our Only Mediator. And this sums up this message that we've looked at here today very, very well. He said, the Reformation was, more than anything else, an assault on faith in humanity and a defense of the idea that God alone reveals himself and saves us. We do not find him. 
He finds us. That emphasis was the cause of the cry, Christ alone. Jesus was the only way of knowing what God is really like, the only way of entering into a relationship with him as father instead of judge, and the only way of being saved from his wrath. Truly, we can and must declare with the Reformers, Solus Christus, Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus. We come to you in his name with confidence, knowing that because of him, we have standing before you. Lord, help us not to look for any other Savior, any other ritual, any other activity on our part. Lord, let our imaginations be held in check by the word of God. And may we believe in, cling to, and declare that Christ and Christ alone is our Redeemer. We pray these things in his blessed name.